Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of this show. Thank you for downloading this and just listening wherever you are. Brandon and I absolutely love getting what we getting to do what we get to do. And uh, today is no exception. So today we actually have a guy, uh, Scott Meshberger, who is uh, a man that I, I've been talking with for years about what we're going to be talking about today. So it's kind of fun to finally get him on. Uh, I think we mentioned it first time probably back in 2017. And so, um, you know, sometimes I'm a little slow on the uptake. So anyway, Brandon, uh, what, what do we know about Scott? Yeah, well, you know, I just recently met Scott actually at CAFO uh, last year and he had a, a table up uh, from Taylor University. Uh, there's a lot of Christian you know universities out there in the world. You're affiliated with one. I'm affiliated with one, two, you know like uh, but I had never heard of this, but when I was like, okay, well, they're tabling at CAFO, you know what what do mm-hmm. they got all about? What, what's this all about? And I saw that they actually had an orphan and vulnerable children program at Taylor there in Indiana and uh, thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. A whole, a whole major plus minor, you know, yep. in, in OVC. So thought, okay, you know, this is a guy I want to talk to, you know, I'd like to say professor to professor, but I'm an adjunct, you know, there's, there, there, there is a, there is a delineation there, but, uh, but just so encouraged by the, by the work that they're doing on the side of academia and then also his personal uh, study and, and expertise uh, that we're going to dive into uh, in this episode. But yeah, uh, Scott is uh, a, a new guy that I've gotten to connect with and, and just really grateful for the work. Yeah. And so what this shows you folks is Brandon is a lot quicker to get guests on rather than just saying he wants to get them on. So that's what one of the lessons we've learned today. Um, afterwards, we'll talk as well about some of the ways, um, you know, you can, I know, connect with Scott and, uh, and be able to use this if you're teaching this somewhere, even in, in a church or something like, I remember the first time that we connected on a call was when we were talking with faith to action and some other, uh, organizations about, uh, the education side of things and how we can get more of this into there. I was working at William Jessup as an adjunct, as I still, still do have a one class on orphan and vulnerable children. And we were actually talking about the possibility of a major and so on. So the fact that they've done it is super exciting. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it with him here, how it happened. Um, we were talking a little off camera. I might take something against, you know, away from him. So, you know, spoiler alert, but he, you know, he said it was an act of God to get, to get this to happen. So we'll, we'll kind of see how God moved in, in this interview. So I'm very much looking forward to it. I am as well. And, and while we're name dropping, you know, shout out to Multinoma and shout out to Vanguard where I also get to add junk. But today it's all about Taylor. So uh, let's let's go ahead and get uh, prof- uh, Professor and Doctor Scott Meshberger in here. Well, uh, Doctor Scott Meshberger, uh, it is a it is a pleasure and an honor to uh, get you onto the Think Orphan podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to be a part of what you guys are doing. Well, thank you so much. You know, uh, I, we were just sharing in the intro a little bit about, you know, how we came across your work and, and just following along with the OVC program that you've established at Taylor University. Uh, you know, we would love to, could you just share with our audience a little bit about your own background and, and what really led you to working in the OVC space and, and specifically along the lines of academia? 
Yeah, sure. So my background, I'm actually trained as a counseling psychologist. So that was my training in more clinical work. Um, I was a longtime professor of psychology here at Taylor. And um, we began to kind of two pieces began to come together with it. We had a lot of our Taylor students who were doing work overseas. So Taylor is a school of about 1800, 1900. And we had about 200 of our students working in with vulnerable children worldwide a year. Um, so it was a big student interest. Uh, in addition to, um, you know, we had several experiences um, as a psychology professor, we were asked to come do consulting with uh, institutional care facilities about things like attachment, behavioral issues, uh, looking at discipline strategies, um, some trauma, although this was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So there wasn't as much conversation happening at that point, but certainly that was leading up to it as, as far as, you know, working with these kids coming out of pretty tough situations. Uh, so it, it kind of led me to this OVC direction, even though my background is more in uh, understanding peace and conflict. Um, it, it, it began to bubble up with through that psychology lens. And yeah, no, that's it's interesting because I was looking through some of your background and research and, and saw some of your affiliations there. This this um, this emphasis on peace building is, is really interesting. And, you know, I would just encourage our listeners. This was a conversation that we were having last season as well. Like what happens to orphaned and vulnerable children when conflict arises and, and some of the thing, conversations that we had uh, last year um, on Think Orphan were about the situation in Myanmar, the situation in Ethiopia, the situation of internal you know, gang violence and stuff in El Salvador. You know, these were some of the things that we were looking at because the, the, the overlay there is really significant. And I think your background, uh, Dr. Meshberger, around, um, you know, the, the peace and conflict, the OVC, and then also the psychological pieces is, is really significant. So I also love hearing just how organic um, it was to actually start this very unique program. Yeah, it really came out. I mean, the students caught hold of it, administrators began to see, and, and, and you know, Taylor is, um, we're 175 years old, uh, celebrating our 175th anniversary. So we've got a long tradition of service internationally. So it's kind of in our DNA in some regard. Um, so it was kind of, uh, but it was very organic, just coming out of both who we were and, and what students were passionate about. Yeah, I remember, uh, I couldn't remember exactly when the first time we talked was, but you know, it was, it was back several years ago anyway. And I was talking about in the intro, just that it was in the context of, hey, how can we get something like this going in the universities, and particularly the Christian universities, was was more than likely. But there were even a couple, uh, you know, secular universities that were on those calls, and so it, it was exciting to me to see that it's you know going online even today, and just reading up on it and seeing the major, minor, seeing how built out it actually is. We'll have that link on the show notes, folks. But but wh- how did it go from being this idea to you know to being a major because there's so much that goes into that in academia. And I know a lot of folks out there, we're not going to get in the nitty gritty necessarily, but for a school to say yes to a major, you know, one of the big things that I'm curious about is how you overcame the, well, how are you going to make money in a job after all this question that, that the, that the people often ask when it comes to a major. So how did it go from being this kind of seed of, Hey, there's some students here who are interested to being, where the school says, yes, this is something we're going to pour into. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, obviously, higher ed, you kind of reference that it's a it is a slow moving animal. Um, it does not accept change as easily. And so, you know, I, I was very fortunate to, to work in a, a psychology department that had a lot of support for some of the work we were doing. I have some really great colleagues that were helped establish uh, both as a course and then it built into the academic minor. Um, and so it, it was a very gradual process as, as we were going along. And, and certainly there's obstacles, um, you know, as going through with developing a curriculum. I felt a lot of pressure designing a curriculum that doesn't exist anywhere. And so, you know, in, in higher ed, we like to model on other departments and other what other people are doing. Uh, and this didn't really fit in any particular category. And so trying to get stakeholders um, buy-in from a lot of different departments. And even with a major, we, you know, we think about it in as almost a problem-based education. So as I describe it to, to parents, I say this is um, invert the way you think about education. So generally we think about education, you're gonna study specific disciplines. So come in psychology, social work, public health, education. And what I try to explain to students is invert that. Instead, we're saying, here's a, we're passionate about this problem, uh, vulnerable children worldwide, whether it be refugees, adoption, foster care, um, trafficking. You know, we're, we're passionate about this issue. Let's design a curriculum and invert it. So students who are coming in really passionate about this, let's build a curriculum out that helps them see the breadth of the issue. You know, we're a liberal arts college, so it gives them that breadth of knowledge with some specific tools such as a, a philanthropy course or a monitoring evaluation course or some policy courses that allow for um, them to kind of insert the workforce and give them some distinctives as well. And so even as I, as I, you know, Taylor's not cheap, higher edge is not cheap um, these days, you know, what is that job that we see students in and, and what are they going to be doing? And so that balance of helping capture that calling, that, that passion that they have with the problem-based education, but then also blending in some um, particular skill sets that, that might lead to some marketable skills. And we put together an advisory group, you know, you, you see Susan uh, Hillis uh, on some of the work I've done. And so she, along with Beth Guggenberger and, and many others, have been kind of connected to uh, giving feedback, talking about these things, and, and kind of making sure that we're uh, kind of in line with where the field is heading and what our what our students can be doing. Um, but at the end of the day, we're a liberal arts college, and we, we believe in the breadth of knowledge, Christian mm -hmm. liberal arts college that trains students to connect their vocation and their calling with, with these academic disciplines. So. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I think too, the idea of in, in being, you know, kind of like Brandon, I'm, I'm adjunct and, and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm able to just, just kind of get a taste of the academia, which I think is, is, is good enough for me right now. Um, and, uh, but, but I love what I love hearing and, and it's funny that ironically, I think most of these kids will probably be more ready for the world than other students who are specializing in one area. I think our world is getting to be where knowing a lot about a lot of different things where then you can hone in on what you need at any given time is, is really where a lot of, and I think quite frankly, like you said, problem solving and to figure out a problem and how do we solve this problem and to realize there's nuances and it's not like, especially in this area, you know, that's one of the things I talk to my class about when I teach, you know, it's one class orphan and vulnerable children. I love this as a whole major, but these are nuanced, you know, there's, there's, there's no one thing, right? So what would you, you know, how, how are you guys doing? I know you are, cause I've seen what you're doing and I've talked with you about it. 
But how are you taking it and saying, okay, it's nuanced and there is a theory practice gap. How can we learn to bridge that gap um, uh, as much as we can? And what does that bridging actually look like as you're teaching it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, as, as I approach it within our, the courses that we teach and then also the, the, the major, you know, for students, uh, our incoming generally 18, 19, 20 year olds as they're coming in, they want to rush to what's the intervention stage. They want to make a difference. They want to change uh, the world. They want to, you know, and, and that's amazing. And that passion and that desire to move towards that, you know, what we call intervention. And so, you know, I think taking that step back and we walk through with the students quite a bit and try to connect it to the theory. And so we talk about understanding theories, understanding theory of attachment, child development, but also things like social ecological theory, um, going back to scripture and looking to see, you know, what does this, how does this inform how we think about some of these things? And so, you know, we think about the, the kind of theoretical pieces, what do we know, uh, moving to um, the assessment piece of, of uh, you know, how do we, what do we see then as we're looking on the ground and then how are we conceptualizing, blending the theory with what we're seeing before we even get to the intervention stage. And I think what's happened, you know, you, we, we talk about ethics quite a bit uh, and we have them read a lot of kind of short-term missions or some of the stuff Faith to Action puts out and a lot of, a lot of great stuff going on out there with Rethink Orphanages and, and, and a lot of those conversations that are emerging. And so when we talk about ethics, part of the problem is we're moving towards interventions without really having that those first few stages of, of understanding the theory. What do we know? What are we seeing? And, and a lot of the cultural baggage and bias that could go into that, moving to conceptualization. And then do our interventions even match our conceptualizations? And I think that whole process for students to go through it, um, it, it gives them a much more robust way before they even get to the intervention strategy. Um, and they're kind of chomping at the bit, I think, to get out and do something um, by the time they talk a lot about theory and assessment and, and some of those pieces. So, yeah. And I think that, I mean, I think the students are chomping on the bit to get out there when they're 12 nowadays, you know, it's because of the social media and because of what they're seeing. And it's, you know, it's this idea of, I want to go do. And I, one of the, my early think orphan interviews was Jeff Sandifer and he's, he's kind of a disruptor in the world of education. One of the things he talked about is we, we need to teach more today on how to be and how to do than just learning stuff, right? And uh, learning to know is kind of what he talked about because we have Google, because we have these different things. Now, obviously we need to learn the know part too, to know how to learn and how to discern and all those things. But can you just share a bit about, you know, we know and people can go to the website to look, but just a, a overview of what, what will, if, if I'm, if I'm just a parent saying, Hey, which I am by the way, uh, and my kid says, Hey, I want to go to Taylor and I want to, you know, do this orphan and vulnerable child major. Um, what would I, what would I hear from you if I called you and said, Hey, Hey Scott, like why in the world would I send my kid and pay this kind of money to go to this school? What will my kid get? I mean, you mentioned a little bit, but what are the specifics about the, the theory, the practice that they're actually doing? And then also, you know, you, you talk about in the, uh, at least on the website, that this is not really the end all be all that you want them to do double major or maybe have a minor with it as well um, to maybe have some of the more traditional things too. Cause we can speak to all that. It's kind of a lot in that question, but hopefully you, you could follow that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think 
introducing the majors and interdisciplinary major. So coming in, and I mentioned kind of the problem-based approaches. So you have, really have to, re, in a sense, rethink how you're thinking about education at some level. So, um, and, and that, I think that frees the student because we're going to give them some of these core courses. Who, what are these kind of absolutes? We believe students who are going to go do this work for the most part across, you know, global, uh, domestic or global settings. What are some of those things we need? So we do some introduction, introductory courses. We have child development courses. Um, we have a course which is on violence against children, um, which I believe is, you know, the more and more I've got into this field of the violence language and, and is and is a huge piece of, of what we're what we're looking at with these kids. But um, you know, moving into some technical skills like monitoring and evaluation, um, like the philanthropy and grant writing, and then from there, you know, with that core, we really ask students to explore and say, you know, if we think about this, this connects to so many other disciplines, so many other areas. So we have a film and media major who's also OVC, and she's looking at. You know, we're trying to get her lined up with a practicum to go do some video work with unaccompanied minors in Greece this summer. You know, we've got we've had uh, students who are. Uh, you know, doing psychology and OVC, and they're interested in doing more counseling, trauma-based work. Um, students who are, you know, connected to, um, uh, we've had students do sign language um, and kind of design their own concentration, and, and they're off doing work uh, with various settings that they're able to use sign language with vulnerable kids. And so we see this permeating every area of, of every discipline. And so it allows and we're encouraging students to think about this in a complementary way. This is not a standalone discipline. This is a problem that we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And for each student to come in and begin to combine us with what they're good at, what they're passionate about, but yet at the end of the day, they really want to, they want to serve a world in need. And so we're trying to, to introduce them to those concepts. I, I think it gives them the freedom too, because, you know, so many of our students are coming in and, and, they, they can list five different things they want to do. And so it allows them kind of that freedom to explore that, what they're good at, where do they see themselves heading? And then ultimately we have two practicums. We have them do a practicum international, uh, global practicum, and then also domestic practicum. And so it's been a little tricky with COVID these days, but uh, we're. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. So encouraging to see how it's grown over the years. Yeah. And I would just say like, uh, it's funny because I remember when I was an undergrad and I was studying to become a teacher because I knew I wanted to work with kids and I was about a, it was a whole other story, but uh, I was about a year left and felt God telling me to go run an orphanage in Africa <laughs> and actually went into that. Um, and, uh, you know, two and a half years into that realized, oh, you know what, it'd be better if we got these kids into family, which was, that was its whole other journey, you know, and I ended up being there for eight years, but I think like, what would have been a valuable undergraduate degree for me? Because I got a liberal studies degree from a Christian liberal arts college. I thought I was going to become a teacher, but I was in California, never went back and got credentialed because all of a sudden I was going to be a missionary in East Africa and work with OVC and all of this. I just think, man, I wish I had gone to Taylor. Now, now I really love my alma mater, but <laughs> but to me, it sounds like a fantastic program. And, and uh, I wish, you know what, maybe, maybe you guys can send some some graduates our way because one million home we we always look look forward to uh to to well-trained people but uh you know one of the one of the things from your specific background uh scott is around violence against children and and peace building um now as we were preparing for this interview um we were privileged to take a look at the at the table of contents of a book that you have releasing later this year 
Um, so within this area of expertise is understanding and addressing violence against children. Um, and before we get to the book, can you just help our audience understand this critical risk and, and trauma that children go through um, when it comes to violence? For sure. You know, it, it's really been interesting, this journey that I've been on, just to kind of set the book up a little bit, because a lot of my background, my initial interest was uh, in psychology was actually on conflict is looking at forgiveness, reconciliation. My dissertation was in Northern Ireland. I'd done a series of studies in, in kind of different places all over the world. Uh, so it, they, the passion of working with vulnerable kids really ran in parallel with my, my work in peace studies. And so um, I actually met Susan Hillis uh, and a lot of the literature uh, on violence against children was really starting to take hold globally. I was in the sustainable development goals and with the Inspire package and with a lot of other movements that were happening. And as I, as I worked more in this space, it really allowed me to bridge some of these um, pieces in my parallel paths together, which was really satisfying. But also it allowed me, it, it was almost, almost a veil that became pulled back as we begin to look at just the sheer amount of violence and you know, 1 billion children annually experiencing violence. If you begin to look and see, you know, what's happening in Ukraine right now um, and, and all over the world still with different settings, um, just the, not just the impact of violence on the kids, but the generational impact that happens where you have entire generations that are, that have been disruptive and, and traumatized and how, um, and just working with a colleague uh, came and talked to our class about the Democratic Republic of Congo when she was talking about how you know, mothers who were raised during really significant displacement and and how um, you know they were having difficulty being moms and 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 so you know just educationally and, and getting connected to prostitution things like that and so you begin to look at violence and and really how it begins to permeate all levels of society. It, it knows no bounds uh, and it becomes more and more connected to, I think, a lot of these conversations with kids entering the system and institutional care, uh, getting connected to trafficking and, and child soldiers. I mean, that's just kind of everywhere as we begin to look at it. And it's, it's an important place for, um, I think, a lot of researchers to begin to, to bring together uh, and to analyze. And so for this, it was me bringing my different worlds together with OVC and then bringing in the psychological community that a lot of great researchers are doing work that they wouldn't necessarily always think in, in these ways of, of linking together and begin to develop more of a robust response from the psychological community on violence against children. Yeah, I would be interested because, you know, speaking about conflict, right? And we see what's going on in Ukraine. We see what's going on in some of these other areas of the world. And that's a significantly violent environment, right? And at the same time, you know, we can just look at societies that aren't in such turmoil and we can think through adverse childhood experiences, right? And a couple of those, like on that, you know, 10 point scale or whatever you want to say, um, you know, there's violence against the mother, there's abuse against the child, right? These different forms of violence. For you as a psychologist and a researcher, is there is there any difference in in how that's going to hamper a child's development if they are in one of those kind of more like chronic you know kind of situations within the household where there's this dysfunction and there's violence uh, versus a Ukraine or uh, you know some of these other areas that we've looked at what what does that what does that look like is there any difference on the uh, on the kid uh, 
coming from those two very uh, two different forms of violence that they that they suffer. Yeah, you know the amazing thing about working with kids in this space is they're amazingly resilient. Sometimes, I mean, they can be in the face of really intense situations and and um, and do well. Um, but in general, you know, as you think about things that are situations settings that are that tend to be more chronic. Uh, tend to be connected to some more negative outcomes. Um, you look at protective factors, and, and obviously maternal care, is the, is the mother still around, is the father, but you know, maternal, paternal care, are they still these protective factors in place? Are they still connected to schools? You know, there's so many factors that go into understanding where those children are at. I mean, certainly uh, the, the intensity of Ukraine is problematic, but equally so, you know, you look at kids who are in abusive homes and continually chronically abusive homes and, and the negative outcomes there are, are usually pretty significant as well without any type of protective factors in, in place. So go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so would it be fair to say that we could actually <laughs> have a larger impact for children just by basically having more appropriate prevention just in everyday society, like plays like the US, right? Washington, California, you know, whatever. Um, you know, is it, is it safe to say that, um, that, that we have more of an opportunity just kind of with everyday type of situations? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, there's so much violence everywhere. Uh, and it knows no boundaries. And yeah, I mean, just within our own communities, uh, within families within our own communities, um, beginning to not just see what's happening in Ukraine, but also recognize what's happening outside our front door um, and looking in, in. And it's so hidden oftentimes. Um, and even within churches, um, you know, how do we continually strengthen parenting, positive parenting? Uh, how do we begin to put these pieces into place that are that are really going to be pro-social, um, pro-child, um, and developmentally correct. You know, it's, I, I, I shouldn't joke with my students, but I often joke, you know, for parenting, parenting's hard. And, you know, our parents aren't trained how to parent. You know, you're better trained how to drive a car than you are how to parent. And so how do, how do we begin to really equip parents to, to have nonviolent parenting techniques and, and um, and some of those kind of peaceful practices that we can translate not just out of Ukraine, but also in our own families. Yeah. And I would be interested if you could even kind of help us further understand this from kind of like a, the mm -hmm. gravity of violence against children. I believe if I heard you correctly, you said that there's a billion children worldwide sure. that have suffered some mm -hmm. type of violence. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, uh, Susan Hillis and others have have published this work. Uh, the one billion children annual, annually experience violence, uh, and you know I, I think when she first told me that number, it, it's astonishing. We we think of epidemics and pandemics and, and and kind of the world we're in, and absolutely the impact of violence is we've not even began to pull back the the layers of I think how much it's permeated every society. Uh, and all of the places and spaces that it, it is present. And so, I mean, you look at all the negative health factors, economic factors, emotional, spiritual, I mean, it's, it's linked to so many negative outcomes. Yeah, no, it is, it is remarkable and, and the gravity of it and, and really sobering, right. For, mm -hmm. for us to realize just how prevalent violence against children is and that the onus is on people like 
us that are parents, but also people that are professionals working in child welfare and child protection spaces to make sure Mm -hmm. that we're installing mechanisms to actually protect children, um, especially if we are running some sort of care program, right? So that could be foster care, definitely with residential care. You know, these um, systems have to be properly developed around safeguarding. And that's one of the things that we have discussed on Think Orphan and would just encourage our listeners as you hear, you know, from from Dr. Scott about just the prevalence of violence. Look, that's what we're trying to address. We want to love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence. And a key piece to that is making sure that they're safe and that they're protected against violence. So, um, you know, I want to, I do want to talk about the book a little bit as well. Yeah, sure. So you have this book that's going to be released released mm-hmm. later this year. Um, the mm-hmm. title is Building Cultures of Peace, Psychological Perspectives on Understanding and Addressing Violence Against Children. Uh, so in the abstract, which I was able to read, um, you know, it says that in so much as children represent the future of our society, understanding and addressing violence against children is critical to building cultures and systems that promote a just and sustainable peace. So again, you're really kind of linking those two together mm-hmm. really effectively. So drawing from frameworks in both psychology and peace studies, contributors uh, focus on the psychological research across global settings to illustrate the nature and effects of violence against children in various settings and examine recommendations for prevention, practice, and policy. I love that that when we talk about the theory and the practice, right? We have to have both of those things right, the prevention and the practice and the policy. So could you share with us what research is showing us about this relationship mm-hmm. between violence against children and peace building? Yeah, I mean, I've been really honored to, it's my co-author. Uh, we've split it 50-50, Laura Miller uh, Graff at University of Notre Dame, and, and she's an amazing psychologist has been doing really great work on resiliency and, and families. Um, and so we had an opportunity. Um, I was visiting a research fellow at the University of Notre Dame, and we'd worked quite a bit within uh, the American Psychological Association with some of its peace psychology and peace studies components. And, sh- and she's at the Kroc Institute for Peace Studies, which was the premier peace studies institute in, up at Notre Dame. And so uh, as we begin to think about it and look about it, how can we bring together a lot of these worlds um, in, in, in both in psychology and peace studies? Uh, how can we uh, get some really leading researchers who are doing really amazing work um, and, and try to begin to formulate? And we view this as a, as a step in this direction. I, I'd love to say we fully linked research and theory with practice. Um, and it's, that's complicated. And, and But hopefully this is kind of pushing this conversation forward as, as, as we can think about um, violence in, in many different places and spaces. Um, and so for psychologists who are, who are doing really great research in a lot of different areas, you know, as we began to see it, it, it became prevalent or it became evident that we started to see, you know, this poly victimization that, that children experiencing violence in multiple ways and multiple spaces, uh, we begin to start to see, you know, kind of these intersectional approaches where a lot of different overlays of, that were impacting these kids. Uh, and so, you know, just the complexity of, of what these kids are facing worldwide in all of these different settings and, and how good measurement and, and good policies that are, are complex and interdisciplinary are, are so needed as, as we try to address some of these problems and, and just keep the conversation going, kind of bringing 
our worlds together as we're thinking about um, trying to solve some of these problems. Yeah, and just kind of speaking to that practice and, and intervention mm-hmm. piece, I mean, what has been proven to kind of be some of those effective ways to address violence against children, right? If we want to be a part yeah. of that solution, what are, what are some sure. of those things? You know, and, and I'll give a quick plug for the Inspire package. Uh, again, my colleague Susan Hill is really one of the leading experts in understanding this. He had put together the, the Inspire package through WHO and a number of different organizations really looking at what works um, in, in some of those violence prevention strategies. And so I'd really steer your listeners if, if they have a moment to, there's some, there's, I think there's a 300 page and maybe a hundred page, I'd recommend the hundred page uh, report that really mm-hmm. can start to link some of those, you know, what works. That's the, that's the reality is we know how to solve this. We know how to create peaceful societies. We know how to create effective parenting, positive parenting, uh, we know these things. It's the knowledge is there, um, and it's it's just trying to 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 begin to implement some of these practices and in, in, in all levels of societies. So, yeah, no, that's really that's really helpful. I mean, I, I'm thinking one of the things that you mentioned is you know ecological systems, mm-hmm. and uh, I had such a thank you Jesus hallelujah moment because one of the frameworks that I teach sociologically is Yuri Broffenbrenner. So sure, you know. Of course. Uh, mm-hmm. ecological systems theory. And I had a couple of my students just recently uh, exhibit that they understood it. And I was like, hallelujah, thank you, God. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, when I think about those ecological systems, you know, around a child, um, you know, and then realizing that a lot of these kids are suffering violence and abuse. Um, and you mentioned, you know, we actually have carved out some ways to kind of build peaceful societies, you know, so I'm trying to like overlay these two and I'm sure there's a question in here somewhere, Dr. Scott, but um, you know, what, what have you kind of found at that family and community level, especially in places in the global South, right? Because when I worked in child welfare in California, you know, there is a prevalence of abuse, right? And a lot of the kids are entering foster care because of abuse mm-hmm. and neglect situations, a lot of neglect, but definitely abuse as well. But, you know, when we look at the global South, a lot of those kind of uh, frameworks and, and mechanisms just aren't there. Mm-hmm. Have you seen examples, you know, thinking around the just normal ecology of a child Mm-hmm. Um, where it's just like, actually, this really worked. There's this one case study, and it's in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's yada yada yada. Do you can you can you think of any kind of offhand where it's just like that really was a protective mechanism that worked within this particular community in the global south? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of our co-authors, uh, Neil Boothby, uh, has done some of these uh, accelerated educational programming and in, in, uh, throughout different countries and in, in kind of Central Africa. East Africa, you know, I, I, I think there's such complexity to say this is this worked here, it's going to work everywhere. Um, you know, as you look at some of these, these intervention strategies, a lot, a lot are through education. Um, there's been a renewed focus on educational systems as a way to, to kind of build in and, and address some of the systemic issues, you know, using that social ecological model. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I probably should have prepared a little better. I don't, nothing comes to mind instantly. Um, with No, but, these but what cases, you just but, said there yeah. is so interesting. I, I actually love that you brought up the education piece. I remember we would mm-hmm. do when I lived in Tanzania. So we did 
I worked at an orphanage for a few years and then went on to do a family-based program that was focused specifically on um, churches, right? So mm -hmm. how can we mobilize the, the local Tanzanian church to care for children, to prevent mm -hmm. family separation and, and, you know, to basically, you know, enhance relationships uh, between child and parent family and church, you know, that's kind of what we would do. And we would, one of the things that we did, we did a number of different things, but one of them that we did was conferences. And one of the things that we um, talked about, which for whatever, well, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, but one thing that we would have people come up and talk to us about afterwards is when we would talk about spanking. Mm. Now in, <laughs> in, uh, now we've talked a little bit about spanking uh, on the podcast before, not too much, mm -hmm. but I was just, I, I have one pastor in particular that I remember coming up to me afterwards and just uh, obviously we're speaking Swahili, but he says, um, uh, he says, Watanzania tunafikiri kwamba kuchapa ni dawa, which means us Tanzanians, we think that spanking is medicine. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was just kind of this interesting uh, framework because we're just kind of handed these cultural pieces and we don't always question it. Right. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, even if you do spank, you know, there are some important ways to kind of go about that, to not do it from a space of anger, you know, mm -hmm. like, like there's some things, but even just the opportunity to kind of raise a conversation that we almost take for granted can actually lead to children being better protected. Right. Um, because a lot of these people, you know, parents, pastors, and others, they're just not even necessarily, um, they're not questioning their own paradigms, you know, and we all need mm -hmm. to do that. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think that education piece that you bring out, even at the community level is really significant. Yeah. And you really bring up a lot of normative elements of violence there too. Right. And, and, and that becomes very tricky. How do you begin to shift kind of when, when certain things are normative within the country and, and who should confront that and, and how do you handle that? It gets to be quite complicated. Certainly the spanking thing comes up quite a bit, I think, in our conversations. Yes. Yeah, so the a lot of the things we just talked about are things I talk to people all the time about. So one of the things I want to just hear from you is with the talk about how to get families trained up, right? One of the things I talk about when I talk to churches is, and this is across the U.S., orphan and vulnerable child care starts in your home. And they're like, what are you talking about? And so I go on to say, look, we need models of healthy families, of intact mother, father, husband, wife, to say, how can we love these kids well? Right? Um, one of the other things I say to my class, and I, you know, if any of my for future students are listening, they'll know one of my final exams questions. So it's basically if we could train up males to be godly men, we could alleviate most of the orphan crisis around the world. Agree or disagree? Why or why not? What would you say about those couple things? Just curious. Yeah, you know, what you're bringing up is really family strengthening um, and and kind of connect what you were saying with, with some of the stuff that Brandon was saying earlier is understanding and identifying what is actually the problem. Uh, and at the end of the day, there has been a breakdown of families and the family structure 
um, you know, is being disruptive, uh, whether it's through violence, whether it's through whatever's happening, war, conflict, et cetera, you know, cultural pieces. And, and so as, as what I love what you're talking about is at the end of the day, you know, and my students say, and we want to go hold babies or we want to go do these things, but, but how'd that baby get there? Uh, how are these mm-hmm. systems contributing to how these, these children are entering the system? And we can't adopt our way out. Uh, we can't foster our way out. At the end of the day, the numbers are too large. There's too many. How do we strengthen families? And, and, that's, yep. and, and that's an intervention. And that's where we have to begin to understand, you know, what do we know? How do we, how do we rethink our, our development? How do we rethink how we're educating parents? And, and I love what you said there about, you know, it starts with us, you know, uh, parenting a child, having to teach about parenting. Uh, children sometimes, you know, and, 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 and you know, making both me a better parent, but realizing sometimes where I'm not that great of a parent, right? And so, you know, having, recognizing that it starts with me, uh, it starts with those around me, uh, and then working out from there. But I love what you said about the, the family strengthening. How do we, how do we invest in, in, in making sure that, uh, you know, these kids aren't entering the system? And that's, it's a big question. If I had the answers to that, that would, you know, that'd be great. So. Yeah. Like we've always said, yeah. Like we always say, we, we wish we could uh, not need the stuff, you know, these people working on it tirelessly, like we've been, you know, to have, to have, be able to have where the kids are being loved in their uh, biological families without brokenness. And, uh, but you know what, we live in a broken world. So how can we, how can we work within that to ensure that as many kids as possible will be loved with excellence? And what does that look like? And it takes on all these different forms as we talk about on this show. That's why we, why I started this back in 16 was to say, Hey, we got all these tools in our tool belt. Let's not ignore any of them, right? Let's do all of them with excellence to ensure that every kid will be loved well. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I'm just super encouraged by, by you to be in just steady and pushing through what I have no doubt was a lot of uh, ba- barriers and red tape and everything else to say, no, this is important. And uh, I know we've had these conversations in the past and I'm, I'm proud of you for, for sticking it out and, uh, and know, uh, you know, a little taste of what, you know, what I've, what I've heard on this end. And I have no doubt that it was a lot more when you're going, you know, just toe to toe with probably some people that were saying, nope, doesn't make sense. It never happened. And he said, you know what, it's important enough. And I know the students were probably part of that as well. So kudos to all of you guys. So, all right. Well, you know, we could talk as usual with most of our guests. We could talk for hours about all these things, but uh, we, we will be wrapping it up now. We ask all of our guests a couple questions. And, and uh, one is, uh, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, um, I, I've gone back to, there's a book called The Whole Brain Child. It's about 10 years old. Um, and I know it's a classic and it's been really popular. I've returned to it a little bit. I've, I've been on this kick with understanding um, the importance of play mm-hmm. uh, as a solution to some of these things. I, I, that's my, that's my, I'm championing that every chance I get of, of understanding the role of play, the importance of play, particularly when we talk about violence you know, pro-social, non-violent play for children. And, and so as I've gone back to that book again, and just looking at a lot of the 
good parenting strategies that come through in a lot of their work and applying it and, and particularly in the area of play. Yeah. You said that it, uh, I, I, I'd be surprised right now if Karen Hutchinson, one of my former, uh, co-hosts on the podcast or if her ears are ringing at this point, cause she, you know, Dan Siegel is, is her hero in, uh, in, uh, in the clinical psychology world. And so, um, just shout out to Karen. Uh, if you're listening to this, there you go. There you go. It's the Dan, Dan Siegel, whole brain child is not, uh, forgotten here. Um, yeah, no, that's a fantastic book. And, and I mean, pretty much everything he's written. Yeah. Yep. And, um, I think I've, I've what I forget the co, uh, co-author's name. What do you remember it, Brandon? Um, she always gets forgotten. Maybe Bryson. Yeah. Yeah. Tina, Tina Bryson. Yeah, that's it. So anyway, so not to forget Tina, cause I'm sure she poured her heart and soul out into that book too. So, um, all right. And I, I, I'm thinking of my co-author, Keith McFarland, where he doesn't care if I ever talk about him, but I'm going to you know, talk about him now anyway. Um, all right. So last question, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love, uh, orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Yeah. You know, I was, uh, just with Susan Hillis and Beth Guckenberger this last, um, you know, this last fall and, you know, they continually speak in, in different ways. And I, I love how, uh, their strengths and, and they're both on our advisory board and, you know, they continue to speak to me, encourage me and, and many others. Um, but, but really watching particularly the work that Susan does and, and, and move between the sectors that she does. I mean, she, all my students, when they meet with her, they say they want to be Susan Hillis when they grow up. <laughs> and I say, I want to be Susan Hillis when I grow up. And so, uh, you know, she's, she's, she's amazing. And she continues to impact me pretty, pretty meaningfully. And so she, graciously agreed to write the preface for our book and, and mm. she's just, she's just wonderful. So. Absolutely. And that, that is another guest that, uh, Brandon got on soon after he came on board, uh, that I've been talking with for years. And, and I just told our audience before this interview that, that, uh, Brandon pulls the trigger quicker on guests than I do, um, as with you as well, since we've, we've talked about it in the past and, and with Susan was another one. And so we, we recently had her on. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, fantastic woman who's doing amazing things. And we have no doubt we'll continue to until, you know, either she's forced not to or God takes her home. So no question about that. So uh, thank you, Scott, for all you're doing. Thank you for uh, just, you know, training up the minds and hearts of, uh, of the, the young young adults who are going to be the future leaders and uh, hopefully doing this podcast in 20 years. Um, that's as, right. That's as right. Well, I assigned your podcast for my, one of my classes. So they, they'll be all excited that, uh, you know, Fantastic. To, to go back and watch some of these things. So thanks for Fantastic. all your work guys. I appreciate it. Yep. You, you too, brother. All right. All the best. Well, thanks again to Scott. Dr. Meshberger, whatever we're going to call him. I don't know. Um, but, uh, what, what a, what a great dude. I, I've, I've always really enjoyed, uh, my conversations with him and just, he's always, he's just so mellow, like <laughs> just being able to just kind of stay the course, which I think is what it's taken, right. To, to just be patient and to know academia, to be able to stay the course on that. And, and also just in the research that he's done and be able to work with, you know, Susan and, and Beth and some of these other people. And we've never had Beth on. I don't think we've had Todd. I never had Beth. Um, 
like we were talking about Tara, uh, Troy Livesey. We never had Tara either. So, um, but anyway, um, getting back to Scott, I, I really thought the things that come to mind with, with Scott regularly for me is just a guy who cares deeply about his students and really want to just serve them, which is why the Orphan and Vulnerable Children major exists at, at Taylor. And, you know, we need more guys like that in our world. So what would you think about it? Yeah, there were a few things that uh, definitely stuck out to me, you know, on that academic yeah, front. And, you know, the whole, the whole thing that we do with this podcast is so that you will love Orphan and Vulnerable Children with excellence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a better you know, undergraduate program to study in, you know, if you really want to do this with excellence, you know, I, I just really have a lot of uh, respect for, for Dr. Scott and, and, and the work that, that they're doing there at Taylor. So I, I think that that was, you know, just the fact that they have that program and, you know, we kind of joked around about being adjunct professors and, and all this. And, you know, the fact that we can get one class in, you know, is, is significant yep. to look at orphans, vulnerable children, children at risk, um, but to build a whole program, that's that's really an achievement, you know, and an asset to those um, to those young professionals that will be entering our space. Right. Because that's right. There is there there are jobs, you know, in OVC, mm-hmm. you know, I have one, you know, and mm-hmm. it is competitive field. Um, but uh, the opportunities that those young people are coming out with, I mean, uh, just imagine that they've really gained a lot. So especially under the the wisdom of of, of Dr. Scott and, and other faculty there. So. I, I thought yeah. that that was really cool. And, um, you know, this, this, uh, this piece around violence against children, um, you know, we talk about family breakdown. We talk about issues that are facing orphan and vulnerable children. You know, violence is huge. I mean, there, there's, just no, there's just no other way to cut it. It's, it's, it's really significant. It leads to a lot of adversity for children. It leads to a lot of family separation. Um, so we have to have it on our radar and we have to be thinking about how can we prevent this? Um, what are effective ways to intervene and what are ways that we can help kids rehabilitate, you know, after they've gone through that violence? So I would just say, you know, both of those big things that we talked about with Scott were just, um, we're just so critical, you know, if we are going to love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence. Yeah. And I was also just glad that he didn't, you know, tell me that my questions were terrible. Cause that would have, you know, I would have felt like I, I was did a disservice to my students for the last several years. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was, I, you know, I apologize out there folks, although I, I, I don't know if I should be apologizing. If that was too professorial for you, cause we had three professors that on this, I, you know, we won't do that to you very often, but no, I, I, it was, it was great. I, I loved having the conversation. I felt a little lost. I'm not going to lie when you guys were talking, cause you guys were using all these big words and stuff. And I don't, I don't know. I was, I felt like I, you know, you never call me Dr. Phil by the way. So I'm just wondering why that yeah. is. I, know, I, so. Well, that's true. You know, I could yeah. juris doctorate, so, you know, that's yeah. still doctor. Exactly. So I was, I was a little offended, you know, but that's okay. That's okay. I, I forgive you. Actually, I, I don't call me Dr. Phil. Please don't call me Dr. Phil. I, I have um, students that keep calling me Dr. Stiver, and I have to like tell yeah. them, like, I don't have my doctorate. That's, I'm just a master. I'm just, just a, a master. master. Master Stiver works. Yeah. Professor yeah. Stiver. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have uh, men uh, like Scott teaching, teaching our kids. You know, I'd, if Taylor wasn't in, the, in, in Indiana, uh, I have a feeling some of my kids would probably be wanting to go there. Um, for not necessarily for that, but I think it's a great school. And, and it's funny because 
like you said, there are jobs in OVC. And if you were looking for someone and they had that degree, you'd hire them in a second. Yeah. Right. I mean, like yeah. you, you would assuming Scott gave him a recommendation, which I'm sure he would, right. If they're getting out of there, especially since they say, Hey, you know, all that stuff he's talking about grant writing, all these, uh, like, I want to go take this major. I got to learn stuff that I can do, um, in this space, doing the fundraising courses, nonprofit management, all these things that you can major in any of those things, but then you're pigeonholed, like, or not pigeonholed, but you don't have expertise in any one area. This gives you all that breadth and focus in an area that if you know you want to do that, man, that'd be amazing. I mean, I, I, like you said, the amount of work it took to, to just get a class that got credit in a, in a major was, was like this Herculean task at Jessup. And I was talking with them in 16 about, Hey, I think it'd be well worth, uh, having a major here because especially if you're the only one doing it, man, that seems to be like, why wouldn't you do that? People would come to your school for that. And I bet, I, I have no doubt people are going to Taylor for this yeah. and, and what a service it is for our, for the orphan care community as well, for us to be able to have these students coming out, the more and more we have coming out who are well-versed in the mm-hmm. issues, as he said, he's using this podcast, which is super encouraging to, to us. I know that this is being used in that way. And it actually is a service to be able to help others, you know, think about these issues, which is why we do what we do here. Right. But to be able to do that and to hear that it's working, <laughs> that's the other cool part about it, right? That it's not just this theory like, yeah, we think it would work. It'd be great. You know, just do it. But it's working. And these students are getting the practical. They're getting the, be able to bridge that theory practice gap and to have new ideas coming in from these very passionate students that they're getting the reality of it too, that they're not just going in guns a blazing saying, Hey, let's fix everything. And we got all the answers. No, I think they're taught up in the nuances of this work that we all know if we're in, if we've been doing it for 10 minutes, you know, um, that, uh, they're, they're well-versed in it. And so, yeah, I, uh, absolutely love this conversation, but, but Brandon, I know you have a recommendation for us, um, that, uh, that you're, that you're going to give our audience that, that somewhat relates to this, uh, this interview we just did. Yeah. Well, you know, I, one of the things that he mentioned and I kind of jumped in on it a little bit later in the, in the conversation with, with Dr. Scott was, um, ecolo- the ecology systems theory, right? So, um, mm-hmm. so my recommendation, uh, this, this is a really, when we talk about theory and practice, um, there is this ecological systems theory, um, which is by a guy named Yuri Broffenbrenner. He's a sociologist from long ago. I can't remember several decades ago. Uh, but he wrote a book called the ecology of human development. Now the book is thick. I'm not saying like go and read the entire book, but when we talk about this gap between theory and practice, this is a theory, um, that as a practitioner, uh, I have found to be very useful. And for those that are interested in providing social work, um, or even looking at family strengthening, like what can we do as far as interventions, what types of services are going to, are going to be helpful in the community. The ecological systems theory um, by by Yuri Broffenbrenner is really something worth looking at, and so I was encouraged when I heard uh, Dr. Meshberger uh, mention that it was it was a theory that was introduced to me by Dr. Greg Birch, another uh, former mm-hmm. uh, guest on the podcast and and my mentor. So 
Um, I would definitely recommend, you know, if you have an interest in social work, if you have an interest in family strengthening or community development, this is one of those theories that, that is read, readily applicable. And it's something that I, that I teach my students in. So uh, the book is The Ecology of Human Development by Yuri Brothenbrenner. If you don't read the whole book, just go on YouTube and just have somebody explain it to you on YouTube, honestly. I mean, it is, it is a helpful theory um, that, that can help you kind of figure out how to do family strengthening better, how to do community services better, and really um, be able to analyze the risk factors that, that a vulnerable child might be going through. So that would be my recommendation. It's, it's a little more academic, but yeah. hey, we had, we had Dr. Meshberger on here, so you have to give him some, you know, a little bit. It's, Look. It's a professor. Brandon. It's it's Professor Tuesday, you know. You know what, folks? If you if you're a, a Brandon Stiver groupie, which I'm sure we have them out there, <laughs> um, you know the last time Brandon was on as a guest, he had another, uh, you know, professorial recommendation on systems theory. So um, I'm pretty sure it was his last episode. He yeah, was that was Systems Thinking for yeah. Social Change yeah. by Peter Stroh. It, it that was. Is, that is a that, very good yes. book as well. Yes. Very, so, a little, it's different. One's looking at human ecology. Yeah. The other's looking at like big macro systems. But systems theory is all the rage right now. So, so there yeah. you go. So if you followed Brandon on those recommendations, you know, consider yourself a, you know, master's level uh, understanding of these different, uh, you know, big things. Don't be scared by the, 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 you know, lingo. It's, these are fantastic, um, very important things for us to learn if we're involved in uh, cross-cultural work, if we're involved in work with nuance, like we've been talking about. It's basically what we talk about when we say everything is interconnected. That's this idea of systems theory. Things are interconnected. That's the kind of fifth grade level uh, understanding of of these these things. I remember when Rebecca Nepp was at World Without Orphans Forum in uh, Thailand a few years ago, and she started did it. She did a talk at eight thirty at night on systems theory, and uh, I was geeking out on it. I loved it, but I think she lost ninety eight percent of the room because <laughs> um, she's you know just really smart on top She's of it brilliant. and she has the australian accent that uh you know it just it's just fantastic so anyway and she talks really fast so i talk really fast too but so i i can, I can hang with it but um anyway all that to say folks you know thank you for for being a part of this show thanks for being a part of the conversation i hope that you got out as much out of this as i did and and brandon did um and as always brandon and i hope that you're taking everything that you're learning from this show and the different resources we're giving you and you're using it all to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.